children in kindergarten through second grade are welcome to go to primary church. And the rest of you, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, we're looking at Exodus chapter 20. We're actually looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And you can follow along in your order of worship as a text or your phone or any other TSA-approved device, I guess. And so I say to you, hear the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come now and that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would come with great conviction of sin, frankly, but I also pray in that time you would come with great conviction of grace and mercy. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things, amen and amen. Well, I'm going to share with you this morning a, a, a vulnerable thing from my childhood a wound that I experienced like every single year for my whole childhood. You see, my full name is Gordon Thompson Allen Jr. And so every year, from kindergarten through 12th grade, for six classes each time, the, te the, the teacher on the first day of school would take the role, and I was always the very first one, and she would say, Gordon Allen, Gordon? All my friends called me Tommy. Everyone knew me as Tommy. And so she said, Gordon, and I sheepishly put up my hand and say, Tommy, please. And all my friends would go, oh! and they did that every year for 13 years. And so it just became this point. I remember going home from school one day. On the first day of school, I was about seven years old, and my parents had been divorced. I told my mom, Mom, why did you name me Gordon? And she said, son, sit down. And I sat down. And she said, here's the deal. When, you were, when, we were, when I was pregnant with you, your dad was really into the outdoors and John Denver. He wanted to name you something like rock or lake or stone. And after I delivered you, he was talking to the nurse about your birth certificate. And I heard him talking about that stuff. And I jumped in. I said, Tom, why don't we just name after you? Gordon Thompson Allen Jr. Wouldn't that be great if you had a son named after you? And he thought that was acceptable. She said, so it could have been a lot worse. I still hated it, but, but names matter, right? I mean, you, how do you feel when someone gets your name wrong or they forget your name? Or what do you even think about your name? I mean, think about you know, this question, what is your name and what does it mean? Does it mean anything? I mean, at some point, every name comes to mean something to somebody, because it becomes who you are, but were you named after maybe your grandmother or you're named after a grandfather? or you're named after some event or something. What is your name and what does it mean? Maybe think about that later today, because names are important. Titles are important. You know, this past week, I was in Oklahoma with my youngest daughter. She graduated from basic training. And on the first day of basic training, apparently, they ask all the 
new recruits, why did you join the army? And she very innocently said, well, you know, I grew up and my daddy was a ranger and I just, you know, it was a part of my life the whole time. And so for the next nine weeks, all the drill sergeants would mock her every time they'd see her and they'd say, my name is Mercy and my daddy's a ranger. And they sung cadences, all the cadence when they run are about what cold stone killers rangers are, right? And so I go to graduation and I'm meeting all of Mercy's friends and the very last night when we were sort of get, saying goodbye to them, a little girl said, Alan, Alan, she wanted to see, say hi to Mercy and she ran up and she saw me standing beside Mercy and she stopped. And I could tell she was probably a little awkward to begin with. And she looked at me almost in awe and she said, are you a ranger, sir? <gasps> I mean, sergeant, I mean, reverend, I mean, pastor. She said, I don't know what to call you. And she just broke down. And I said, you know what? I'm just Mercy's dad. And you can call me Tommy, right? And it just struck me how important names are. I mean, she, she literally was about to break down because she didn't know the right thing to, say, to call me because if she got it wrong, she might bear some punishment for it, I guess. I don't know what she thought, but it was a fun time, nonetheless. Um, so th this morning, we're looking at the third commandment. Remember, we've looked so far at the first two. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself idols. Names are so important that God made his name and, and the, the way we treat his name the third commandment. In other words, it's one thing for God to say, my name is important, and to say names are important, what we call things and people are important. It's quite a different thing for him to add it to the moral code. And so he adds it to the moral code, which, by the way, just forewarning, we tend to think of, of the third commandment as, man, that's the, the commandment God gave us to keep people from cussing. And, but it has almost nothing to do with that. It does derivatively, but that's not why he gave it. It's going to be a lot, lot, lot bigger than that, trust me. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at basically, the first thing we have to talk about is understanding the name. right? So he, God actually speaks of himself in third person here. He said, you shall not take the name of the Lord God, your God in vain. What does he even mean by that? What is the... What did, what is the name, what importance does that carry? Second thing we have to talk about, what does it mean to take the name? He says, you shall not take the name, the Lord your God, in vain. And the third thing we're going to talk about is, what does it mean to embrace the name? And you'll know what I mean when we get there. Let's talk first about what does it mean to understand the name. Let me read verse 7 again. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Basically, when you look through all the Bible and you, you, uh, about this idea of naming things or God's name, there's three things that sort of rise to the top. One is names are often used uh, to control people. In, in fact, they're, they're used to control people or to control situations. In, in fact, remember in Genesis chapter 32, when Jacob is wrestling with the angel, what does he want to know? He wants to know his name. Because in his worldview, if you knew the person's name, you had the chance maybe to control them. If you've ever seen one of the greatest movies of all time, Hellboy, remember the whole movie Hellboy pivots around the fact that, that, that basically the devil at the end of the world, he's the only one who knows Hellboy's true name. And because he knows Hellboy's true name, he can use him to usher in the apocalypse. But Hellboy chooses the cross, by the way, if you haven't seen the movie. 
And so knowing someone's name in the Bible means you could control them. And there is one exception. That, of course, is the name of God. God actually doesn't, not only does he, 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 unafraid to give us his name, he actually glories in revealing his name. He loves to reveal his name to his people. It's sort of like, if you remember the, the I don't even know if the company still exists, but in, in a few years back, the company LifeLock, remember that the, the, their, their guarantee was that they would guarantee your cybersecurity and no one could, could hack your information online. And the CEO was so confident that no one could hack him and hack their company, he actually would give his social security number on the radio or, or online or put it on the side of a van. He would almost dare people to try and take control of his information. I don't know, maybe I haven't heard from him lately, maybe they did. But God cannot be controlled. He cannot be uh, controlled and and, and actually, you know, held by us in the sense that that he's our prisoner. He can't be manipulated or used, in fact, so that he can give us his name. But there's more to it than that. Why does God reveal his name when when a lot of people in the the worldview of the ancient Near East would think that that's a way you can control the God? We can't control God, but he reveals his name to us because he wants us to call on him. In other words, you, can't, you, you cannot call him one whom you don't know. He, he actually encourages his people, use my name, call on my name. In trouble, call me. Call me by whatever name you need, but call me. And here is my name. I am what I am. Here is my name, El Shaddai. Here is my name, Jehovah Jireh. He actually gives us his name on one hand because he can't be controlled and on the other hand because he wants to be in relationship with us and he wants us to call on him. And by giving his name to us and putting his name on us, he actually identifies his future with our future. He binds himself to us in covenant. It's sort of like, you know, I mean, it's, it's not as completely common these days, but when a husband and when a couple gets married, the wife takes the husband's name. They're bound together. Now they go by the same name. God says, you have to know my name because you're going to be bound together with me. If you're going to take it, you need to know it. So the first thing is control. The second thing is characterizing. And what I mean by that is that on one hand, when you look at the Bible, um, a name is just a name. In, in other words, when you think about the Abraham Abraham is just that old guy right there. On the other hand, a name actually denotes and connotes what a person is in the Bible. So that's Abraham, that old guy sitting over there on one hand. On the other hand, his name actually means father of many nations. So his name actually is who he he is. He can't escape his name. In other words, his name and his character are, are inseparable. And when you consider the name of God, his name and his character are also inseparable. That's why when you read the names of, of God, they actually don't just say what he will do. They, they say, in some sense, what he must do. They say, in some sense, what, what he by nature does. And so, for example, one of the names he goes by is uh, Lord Sabaoth. Lord Sabaoth means something like the one who wins the battle. Well, why does he call himself Lord Sabaoth? He calls himself the Lord Sabbath because he must win the battle. Remember Martin Luther put that in him. He doesn't have a choice about whether he's going to win. That's his name. His name is Jehovah Jireh. Why? Because he is the God who provides. He's not the God who will provide if you call him by the right name. He is the God whose name is Jehovah Jireh. Therefore, he will provide. His name and who he is is inseparable. And when he says, I am who I am, 
There's no one, you think about back to the issue of control, that when we name things, we control them in the sense parents name their children. You know, maybe if you start a company, you name the company, or if you conquer a country, you name, rename the cities or something. God, God is the only one with the power to name and characterize himself, and he says, I am who I am. I'm, I'm the first and the last. I'm above all. I'm through all. I'm in all. Everything is in my presence all the time. And that brings us to the third thing. God's name equals his presence. And that, by the way, is where things start to get big. That's where things start to get dicey, at least for me. Because if you go from sort of narrow to broad and you look at the Bible, God, God puts his name upon, uh, on, for example, the angel that led Israel out of Egypt. God says that God put his name upon that angel. So God's presence is with his name, and it's focused on this one angel who's leading them. That's where his presence is right then. But also he puts his name upon his people, Israel. And so his name, his name is upon Israel because he is present with his people. His name is on the temple, the Bible said, because he is, he is present in the temple. His name is, the church bears his name because his presence is in the church. And it gets even bigger than that. You see, remember when Jesus got in an argument with the Pharisees at Matthew 23? And he was talking to them about swearing oaths. You see, what they've been doing is they've been swearing oaths. And instead of saying, may God be my witness, they were saying, may heaven be my witness, or may earth be my witness, or may something else be my witness. Because when you call a witness, you're saying, may that person also punish me if I don't tell the truth. And they thought they were getting around things. And Jesus said to them, let me straighten this out for you. When you say, when you swear by, you, you can't swear by heaven because heaven is where God's throne is. You can't swear, swear by the earth because the earth is, is his footstool. In other words, Jesus makes the case that, God, that all of creation bears the name of God. All of creation is in his presence all the time. And so what does that mean for the third commandment? What that means is this, that any and every single time you and I misuse any aspect or anything in creation, we are in violation of the third commandment. I thought the first commandment was big. And then I thought the second one was big. I'm beginning to think they're all actually pretty big. Anytime we misuse any aspect or part of creation because it bears his name, ultimately, he is sovereign or or in control of all things, we actually also are violators of the third commandment. But it gets even better. Because not, not only are we supposed to utilize the name correctly, but we're supposed to take the name correctly. In other words, assuming you've got the right understanding, how do you actually live that out or work it out? So we'll look at next. What does it mean to take the name? And again, he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, it's helpful to know that that, that if you were going to translate this literally, it will be you shall not bear or lift or lift up the name of the Lord your God meaninglessly. Take, notice it doesn't say you shall not speak the name of the Lord your God. It says take. And so you have to, do, what does that mean? Take, the word there is never in the Bible translated as the word speak. It's always translated as something like to bear or to carry. Or in the, in the, the Old Testament, when someone would become a slave in, the, in one of the surrounding cultures, they might get a tattoo, a brand upon them. That's what it's used for. In other words, you carry, you're branded with this name, 
of the Lord. You, he, you bear his name, and he says you shall not bear it meaninglessly. In other words, you, should, you shouldn't misuse the name of the Lord. So it, it actually has a positive use. It is something for which we're supposed to use it, and we should not use it meaninglessly or emptily or lightly, that you and I bear the name of the Lord, and that actually ties in to the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Remember, we talked about the purpose of the Ten Commandments was actually to equip and preserve God's people in their mission to bless the nations. And how do we bless the nations? Well, we bear God's name to them. We represent his presence to them. And he says, you're not to take that lightly. Notice we haven't even gotten into language yet. Until now. Because when you look through the Bible, there's basically three big categories where, where the issue of language and, and God's name is invoked. And the first is actually in the issue of oaths and vows. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't take an oath. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He was actually correcting a very specific situation. And when you look through the rest of the Bible, there are lots of oaths and lots of vows. And what is an oath? An oath is basically calling God to witness some promise that you are making. And you're not only calling him to witness, but you're calling him to, to judge you if you do not do that. And a vow is some promise that you are making, but you're still calling him to witness the fact that you made this promise. And so positively speaking, you see oaths all the time. And you see vows all the time. So when members stand in front of the church to, to make their vows, right? They're, they're basically saying, um, I'm promising to keep the third commandment and keep my word. I promise, you know, A, B, C, and D. Officers do the same thing. When officers take their vows, they're basically calling God to witness on them. Every now and then, some smart elder or deacon, instead of saying, I do, they will say, by God's grace. <laughs> right? That's probably all, and all any of you will say in the future. But I've noticed that. You'll hear, I do, I do, and one murmur, by God's grace. Because it's hard. It's hard. Basically, the third commandment is saying you're, what you're doing when you take a vow is you're promising to keep your promise all the time. And may God be your witness, and may he smite you if you don't. I don't know about you, but that's pretty big. The next thing, way you see that God's name being used is in confessions. We confess his name. We confess his name to the nations. We confess his name to each other. And what's the negative, what, what, what's the negative outworking of confession? What's concealing? It's hiding. It's not talking about it. In other words, if our mission is to be a light to the nations and we're going to be obedient to the third commandment, we must actually share the gospel with people. We must actually confess his name to those around us, not only by word, but deeds, but in words as well. And so I hope that helps you understand. I know for years people said, oh, I'm so tired of you talking about being outwardly faced. I'm so tired about you talking about how we need to share the gospel with people. I think it's actually part of the moral code. We are actually called by, by virtue of the Ten Commandments, especially number three, to confess his name to the world. That's the positive outworking of not taking it lightly. What's well, taking it seriously and confessing it to the world. And the last thing that we're called to do is we're called to, to bless in the, his name. And so when a human blesses another human in his or her, in, in the name of God, what they're saying is God bestowed the benefits of your grace upon this person. And so you bless them. We bless children. We bless each other. When you bless God, you basically are basically saying, um, I praise you. Now, what's the opposite of blessing? Remember, the, the, each command has, a, has, a, has a, one, a different side of the coin. Well, the opposite of blessing is cursing. That you're actually, instead of calling down blessing on people, you're calling down cursing. Now, by the way, who does the Bible call us to bless? 
If you're thinking all people, you're correct. And if by all people you mean even your enemies, you're correct. And if by all people you mean even those people you disagree with, you're correct. The Bible calls us to bless all people, whether we are enemies with them, whether we agree with them, whether or not we, we like them. And in some level, what that basically means is you desire their salvation. You desire that they would experience the blessing of being delivered from their sins. You desire that the opposite of that is to curse them. And that, by the way, is where cursing comes in or cussing. Because when you, when, you know, if you, when, you, when you cuss in theory, you're actually asking God literally to damn that other person or to damn that thing, that aspect of his creation that has frustrated you. And we're called to bless, not to curse. So that's where it comes in. I mean, so don't, don't hear me say that there's, the Bible says nothing about uh, four-letter words or cussing. It sort of doesn't. But by implication, you could see that the Ten Commandment with blessing and cursing, that's where it takes us. Now, so by this time, you should be feeling really good about yourself. And notice how the command ends. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So you always keep your promises. You're always confessing his name to those around you. And you're always blessing other people. And if not, here's what happens. He says, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This command's pretty stark. At least the other one said, if you don't, if, if, for those who don't obey it, I will curse two or three generations. And those who do obey it, I'll bless them for thousands of generations. This one just says, if you don't obey this, I will not hold you guiltless. In other words, I'm not going to forgive, forgive this sin unless, unless there's someone else who actually uses the name correctly all the time. And if you, you get that person who is completely and utterly obedient to the third command, who would actually stand in your stead, then God would let you by. And the good news is we have that person. You see, the third command, at least for me, it takes you right to the edge of, man, I don't have a chance in, to forgive my language, hell, of doing this. Really? That's what, so any misuse of creation, all promises, all blessing, all confession, all these things, if that's what it means, I don't have any chance whatsoever. And the answer to that is you do have a chance. And that chance has a name. His name is Jesus. And Jesus not only embraced the name of God, he actually was the name of God. Notice, um, as we look at it, what it means to embrace the name of God. I love Jesus' interaction in John chapter 8. He, he's arguing with Pharisees, or they're arguing with him, and they get to this point in their argument in John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him and saying, Are we not right, saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? If you think about that, it's sort of crazy. So, so they're t saying to Jesus, a Jew, a rabbi, are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan? You're not even racially one of us, and you have a demon. What is he going to say to that, even if he was a Samaritan and had a demon? And Jesus actually addresses them. He talks about it. He begins to take them back to Abraham. And verse, he says in verse 50, well, verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we see that you have a demon. <laughs> Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Then in verse 53, they say, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets, di and prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were, were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do not know him, and keep, I keep his word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) Do you see what he just did to them? He didn't say, they were saying, are you like Abraham? Are you one of the prophets or one of this? He says to them, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I am who I am. Which, guess what, guys? Do something to me. I don't just bear the name of God. I am the name of God. And since I am the name of God, that means the presence of God is with you right now. And did you, did you notice what they did in response? They picked up stones to stone him for blaspheming, because they knew exactly what he was saying, that this out-of-work Jewish carpenter was basically saying, I am who I am. I am God. I'm the one who created the universe. I'm the one who set everything into place. I'm the one that every molecule dances at my very move and my very word. They couldn't take that, because Jesus came saying that not only do I bear the name on your behalf, but I actually am the name on your behalf. He did a lot of talking about that. He did a lot of I am statements. What's more interesting, at least to me, is that Jesus actually, when it came down to to him winning our salvation, you see, he always obeyed the third commandment in his language and in his actions. But what's interesting is he also obeyed the third commandment in his silence. And it is in and through his silence that we actually were one. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this about Jesus. It says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in other words, when push came to shove, when Jesus was being uh, beaten and crucified on our behalf, when he was being threatened, he didn't return threats. When he was being reviled, he didn't revile. In other words, when he was being cursed, he did not curse in return, but instead blessed all people. Remember what he said? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said very little, and what he said was very poignant. But what won was the fact that he was silent in the context of all that. And in his silence, we were actually forgiven. In his silence, he accomplished salvation for us. And as the application of that, notice what it says. It says, he bore himself our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, Jesus has completely and utterly obeyed the third commandment on your behalf and my behalf. He has saved us from our sins. He has given us our righteousness. And now what are we to do? We're to try. I love our membership promises. Remember our third membership promise says, do you endeavor to live as a follower of Christ? It doesn't say do you promise to live as a follower of Christ. It says do you promise to try? What Peter says is what the death of Christ has accomplished is our utter and complete forgiveness. God's never going to hold our sins against us. Now you can die more and more to your failure with regard to the third commandment, and you can live more and more to the righteousness as it comes to the third commandment. And more and more as you grow into his image. Let me finish with Philippians. 
This is a very famous hymn that Paul wrote. Paul said, have this mind in, in, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, the, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Peter says, here's what happened. And then when Paul re- rehearses it, he says that Jesus was obedient even to death on a cross. And because of this, God gave him the name that is above all names. And what was the name that he gave him? It could have been anything. He could have said, you did everything I asked you to. Now your name is going to be sovereign ruler of the universe. Now your name is going to be the potentate of time. I love that hymn that says that. He says that he gave him the name that is above all names. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Jesus is the name that is above all names. Jesus means Savior. In other words, the name that God has put above every single name in the, all of creation, in all of time, is not king, monarch, holiness. It is Savior, which makes complete sense. It comes full circle. If you go back to the beginning of the Ten Commandments, they start with grace. I'm the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. It shouldn't surprise you to know that the Ten Commandments are going to end with grace as well. Because the Ten Commandments end in the person and work of Jesus. I don't mean they end in that they're not relevant. I mean they end in that they're fulfilled. They end that he has taken care of them. And because of that, this whole issue of the name, his name, God has given him, is the name above all names. And it is the name Savior. And as we look at that, as we live into that, we become like that. Remember I've told you as we've been going through the Ten Commandments, we become what we worship and we, we reflect what we reverence. And are you growing into that? You know, my, my daughters, after the experience I had growing up, I thought any children I have, their names are going to have meaning. And they're not going to be, you know, they're definitely not going to have a Gordon. Not that that's a bad name. And so with our, our, our girls, my girls' names in this order are Abigail, Fear, Flannery Promise and Mercy Evangeline. Abigail Fear, why that name? You see, my, I grew up in a family with all women, and I had all sisters. And then when, when Judy and I got pregnant, actually she got pregnant, I was just there. Judy gets pregnant, and we found out that it was going to be a girl. The whole family did a sort of a collective sigh. Oh, everyone wanted a boy. And my older, the sister that's the oldest of them said, well, at least an Allen girl is going to have a daddy. That stuck with me. Well, Abigail means joy of a father. And the, the, the word, the, why fear? Well, that, Judy was being discipled by a woman who, who loved the Puritans, and they were, they were actually studying the Ten Commandments. And in Psalm 112, it says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Isn't that a bad thing? Blessed is the one who fears his name. And then we had Flannery. Why name a kid Flannery? We named her after Flannery O'Connor, not just because I thought she was a cool writer, but if you've ever read Flannery O'Connor, it's all about grace in the midst of just muck and sin and, and hopeless situations. Somehow she pulls grace out of there. 
and promise. Because remember, when, at the day of Pentecost, people said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. This promise is for you and your children. And then finally, Mercy was born at a church, during a church plant. Some of you heard the story. I had to deliver her. And yet, why her, her, her name comes from Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus came? Because people would say, you can't go plant a church in the middle of a gay community. You can't do that. And I just would constantly think of Matthew chapter 9 when the Pharisees attacked Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners. And he said, go do the Bible study on this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. And what's been amazing to me over the years is to watch them sort of grow into those names. And would they have grown into something else if they had been something different? Maybe, but because they have those names, they grew, they're, start, they're growing into them, and it's been amazing. Now, why do I tell you all that? It's because you and I have been given a name that is above all names. We literally walk out of this building, if you're a Christian at least, bearing the name of Jesus, and that name is above all other names. And as we are walking in that name, we are to grow into that name. You see, we tend to walk around saying, man, did I break the ten? did I break the first, second, third, or fourth? Stop worrying about that. Ask yourself this question instead. Am I growing into the name that's been bestowed upon me? Am I growing into the name that is above all names? Am I growing into the name of the one who has saved me from my sins? Because I have that name, I'm becoming more and more what it is. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray this morning that you would... um, you would put upon our hearts by your spirit that we would grow into the name of Jesus. You have given us that name, and that name is above all names, and I pray that we would, we would become more like him, that we, when one day we see him, we'll see him because we will be like him. And I pray even now that as we fail with, our, with regard to, to, to our striving to keep the commandments, that you would actually give us grace to keep continuing to go to the one who has obeyed them for us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.